This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Welcome to Nothing, Nothing Happens in a Small Town. And uh, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. And fur mamas. And <laughs> all the Yeah, all the all mamas. Because, yeah, there's all sorts of different varieties of mother. And our hearts go out to those of you who are maybe a little less happy today for your own reasons. Because yeah. there are those who have lost their mothers or those who wish to be mothers but cannot. Right. Yes, so lots um, of variations of mamas. Yes, and we're both fur mommies. Yes, so. <laughs> quite the few fur babies, and they're all mad at me today. <laughs> and why are they mad at you? Because we now live in our fifth wheel trailer, and we decided to move it down the road a ways, and they are really not <laughs> fans of getting trundled up in their little cages and put in the vehicle. I can only imagine <laughs> i can just picture nikki going what meow, are you doing meow, to me meow, meow. he he <laughs> sounds like he's hyperventilating yeah, yeah no so my <laughs> husband i was the chase car and he was he was towing and here and there he would ask me questions i'm like i'm at the wrong angle to see any of that but okay and i only had one minor heart infarction when he ran over a curb a very tall one on fort me and i was like oh my god my house is listing <laughs> oh okay it's upright again Woo, we're all right but yeah we were on the phone with each other and i got to hear the felines um say how much they did not appreciate being in their little cages <laughs> i i can only imagine um it's a new world people <laughs> And uh, this is this is a Doris suggestion. However, we are both very familiar with this place because, <laughs> well, Tara kind of sort of lived like, oh, not two miles from yeah. the hospital. Yeah. And since I lived with Tara at one point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, twice yeah. actually two points oh that's right yeah when you first came out, out here and, and then when you moved from that one apartment yeah yep. until we had the derecho and then you moved out because you were like i want electricity yes and for the record that's the last time we've lost electricity <laughs> <laughs> in that house it's like what it was a a freak windstorm that took out electricity because of all yeah. the big trees yeah Yes. My home that we are selling is in Crownsville, and we're talking about the Crownsville Mental Hospital. Yes. So we might be somewhat familiar with the place. It's across the street from what my husband's favorite watering hole slash food joint, Lures. Mm -hmm. Yummy food there. You know, a place is good if all they do is, it's all microbrew, small uh brew type they don't get in no Budweiser nothing like that is sold there it's all they look for the small businesses 
Yeah. Uh, really good food. We've eaten there several times. Really, really good food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the Crownsville Mental Hospital, why is this an episode? Well, because it's, you can imagine how many uh, mental hospitals have we heard of are now haunted and what have you. Oh, yeah. And um, creepy, you know, it's closed now. So it's kind of a creepy wa- looking place when you drive by it. I've been dying to get in and <sighs> pho- photograph it. And... Um, well, I did try. But... You got a really nice negative response, at least. Yes. Like, thank you so much for asking politely. But no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Crownsville itself, um, we are in the major metropolitan area of the Baltimore, Washington area. However, Crownsville is a strange little... I, they don't call it a municipality. It's like a, what was the term I kept seeing? And I then did not actually put in here. But it's it's not like you would think of as a town. You don't like have um, a main street and a central area. It's just like a named area where people live. Yes. Because the area required a naming because it's not, it's rural-ish. Mm-hmm. It's actually, um, it has the Anne Arundel County Fairgrounds, so it hosts that every September. It also has the Maryland Renaissance Festival. That is three miles from my house, from yes. one to the other. So I don't even think the mental hospital is even two probably miles. Not, it's probably no. like a mile and a half. Yeah. Um, the area offers some waterfront scenery and easy access to urban metropolitan areas. Baltimore, Washington. It's uh, 11 miles from Annapolis. Um, as of the 2000 census, I had the 2010 census re- records too, but this included more pe- more stuff. As of 2000, there was 1,670 people, 485 households with 392 families. I don't know, are the other ones just not families? I'm not quite sure what that is supposed to be about, but anyhow. And racial makeup, imagine that, 80.36% white, 15.5% African American, not even 1% Native American, 1.5% Asian, 0.06% Pacific Islander, and 066 from other races, hmm. and 1.2% from two or more races. The Hispanic or Latino of any race were 1.6% of the population. So it's small, just mm-hmm. in the middle of the metropolitan area. Um, personally, I wasn't attracted to there due to its demographic with that regard. What I liked is the house that we owned or still technically own until the 1st of June is a nice parcel of land. It's just over two acres and tons of trees. You can kind of sort of pretend you're in Nowhereville, even though you're really near all these big roads. So you had that privacy, but you also had easy access that is true to the surrounding area mm-hmm. yeah it was definitely i do like that area i mean if you drive yeah. through it it's very pretty tree line yeah it's it is a little more secluded you you have some larger properties there i mean there's that horse farm the paddocks. That's, yeah yeah that's there's very nice what's weird is ours what it was really hard to get comparable data because there the houses are either mcmansions or salt boxes yeah and ours would be what i would call a normal sized house yes <laughs> well over two thousand square feet right but um i sure hope that the people who are buying the property enjoy it um we liked it, it we just decided there were multiple things that came uh, to a head at one time that it was like, let's give this a try. Let's give the living in a fifth wheel, you know, pay off all our bills and be really ready for retirement in 10 years when I can, when I'm eligible. Yeah. 
So, Crownsville Mental Hospital was established in 1911 as the Maryland Hospital for the Negro Insane. It was the first mental hospital in Maryland dedicated to the treatment of the African uh, African American population. And the first, just to tell you, the first in the country that was dedicated to the African American population was the Central State Hospital in Virginia. Hmm. The intention was to care for the mentally ill citizens regardless of race. However, during the 20th century, Crownsville State Hospital was an underfunded, overcrowded, state-run mental hospital where African-American patients lived in inhumane conditions, experienced mistreatment, and were subjected to experimentation without their informed consent. And this is why I thought it was important to at least mention the demographics of the area. That's oh, like yeah. They pulled everybody into here and then just dumped them and forgot them. Yes. It stands on 566 acres of old tobacco farmland that the state bought for $19,000, part of a plan to reform the treatment of mental patients in the area. It was set up as a model of self-sufficiency. Patients built the structures, milked the cows, tended the crops, and harvested the willow wood used to make furniture and baskets. They even cut railroad ties for the spur that bought their families from Baltimore for Sunday visits. This unsettling institution was the site of many gruesome practices such as lobotomies, Okay, I'm going to try and pronounce this. Um, <laughs> Pneumocephalography. Uh, okay. Pneuma, it's like I can't spell it. I can't say it either. It's a long yeah, word. It's, it's like we're really in German here. It's a really word. Now, I did do a little bit of reading on what this is, and it's they freaky. drill, kind of like drill a hole and then drain, drain the, the fluid, fluid, and then they add fluid back in oh it's just so nasty yeah it's not pleasant um and insulin shock therapy the hospital for the negro insane of maryland changed its name to crownsville state hospital in 1912 after the civil war in maryland and across the country the number of african americans labeled insane skyrocketed whites claimed that this surge was due to black inferiority and the inability of blacks to handle their newfound freedom oh my gosh really yeah well Mm. that was a really terrible time to be alive i think yeah originally crownsville was intended to be separate but equal but available (laughs) sorry (laughs) that's okay (laughs) available reports make clear that the conditions were substandard even by the low standards of the day Over time, Crownsville became dangerously and inhumanely overcrowded and understaffed. In fact, patients were more likely to die in the facility than to be discharged. For decades, Crownsville housed the criminally insane, the mentally ill, and retarded adults and children, along with drunks and people with syphilis and tuberculosis, all on one campus. Now, they were a bunch of different buildings, but yeah, Yeah. one campus. The hospital was chronically crowded and understaffed. By 1949, there were 1,800 patients in a space intended for 1,100, with fewer than 10 doctors on the campus. How many doctors do you think would be appropriate for 1,800 patients? Yeah. Uh, a, a lot few more, more than, than 10. 10. <laughs> 
Many of the patients were sent to neighboring farms to work for free under the guise of an industrial therapy program. Sounds familiar. The hospital's own farming operation closed in the 60s and was immediately followed by a mass release of patients, suggesting many of them were only kept as laborers. Mm. Lucille Elsie Pleasant, daughter of Henrietta Lacks, the source of the Gila cell line, lived in the final years of her short life in the hospital, where she died at just 15 years old. Her autopsy photo, like many patients of the Crownsville Hospital, showed evidence of abuse. Photos were found showing evidence of the abuse. One image shows African-Americans lounging on the grass on family day. In another photo, obviously staged, nurses attend to a smiling patient dressed in a coat and tie. Awesome. Others, oh. Yeah, this, this is awful. <laughs> yeah. Other snapshots show an adult chained to a wall, a child with her frail arms strapped to a chair, men crammed into a windis- windowless dorm room. And when I post up today um i am going to post some pictures that i found some you can kind of see the conditions people were living in just just to share because it really is it really was awful and to think there weren't that many pictures of the bad stuff yeah i'm sure that well you can't even find them online i'm sure they have them somewhere but right yeah it's really really bad um the hospital was established to remove the mentally disturbed and homeless from almhouses including one at historic london town parents unable to cope with restless offspring with epilepsy or syphilis dropped off their children there particularly during the great depression when parents couldn't afford to care for kids with special needs some came to visit their children But it was not uncommon for a family to never see a child again, once he or she had been sent to the hospital to live, which is really sad. Yeah. Well, it's it's like we were talking about uh, the orphanages. Yeah. It was a similar but different thing. Right. People found ways to cope, and they may not have lived well with their decisions, but this is one of the decisions that was made. A 1938 admission report is remarkable for its brevity. This patient was carried into the hospital to be admitted by a staff member. The child was cleaned, clean and dressed in a blue snowsuit. She is between 27 months and 3 years of age and is not able to sit up alone. Her left eye has been removed because of a congenital cataract. She cried some while she was in the office and demonstrated a gross tumor or tremor of the arms. She was carried to the ward as per routine, which that's a really horrible routine. (laughs) Yeah. 33 lobotomies were performed on what doctors called the feeble-minded. 56 (sighs) of the 1,800 patients were injected with malaria. Others were given hydrotherapy, which is an alternate immersion in hot and cold water. That's just... Awesome. And here's the pneumocephalography. Yes. Hey, I think I said it. (laughs) It was a common and very painful painful. 
procedure, drilling a hole in the skull and draining fluid from around the brain. And some they would actually put other liquid back in and some they would refill with air and then the people would have terrible headaches afterwards. And you're just like, oh my God, that's so disgusting. Yeah, here you go. Replaced with oxygen or Or helium. helium. Mm -hmm. So the doctors could see the brain better in x-rays. Yep. And many would suffer from headaches and vomiting until the brain naturally restored the fluid, which I'm sure took, took a little a while. Long time, yeah, sure. Um, doctors also inserted metal, metal probes into patients' brains to reach the deep temporal nerves. Lertz says it was common for mentally ill patients to be used for testing after treatments or therapies had been tried out on animals. There was a whole rationale about it if they the patients could pay back the institution for their stay they are not going back to the community they have nothing to lose that just it's it's horrible to it just doesn't fit into what we think of as being right and wrong today yes like part of you can go okay so you did your animal testing now you have to test it on a group of humans well we'll take these people who are not giving back to society in another any other fashions mm-hmm. george phelps the county's first black deputy sheriff escorted countless african americans from the courthouse where they had been convicted of serious crimes to the hospital c building for the criminally insane several tried to escape and mm. some did um Phelps, now 86, says the African-American community knew of the experimental therapy on patients suffering from syphilis and other diseases, but couldn't do anything about it. Parents would jokingly threaten to take their kids to the hospital if they didn't behave. Driven by curiosity, Phelps broke a lock on a building in the 1950s and entered a basement laboratory where he found jars of skulls and parts of women's bodies i saw them with my own eyes you understand i was fascinated but disgusted although many patients were over 65 a 1955 report by the department of mental hygiene reported 35 patients in the nursery and 169 under 16. when you went to crownsville it wasn't because you were mentally ill phelps said it was because you were black Even as late as 1963, children were being injected with hepatitis. In the mid-1950s, experimental operations were replaced by antipsychotic drugs such as Thorazine and Ritalin. Photos show catatonic patients on floors and benches, docile and ignored. One photo shows schizophrenic patients peering in fear from behind a bench. In 1955 annual report, the Department of Mental Hygiene stated, it behooves us to exploit these drugs to the fullest extent. And you you got to ask yourself, why? <laughs> Is yeah. it because then it's a lot easier to um, manipulate them? I mean, as in like you can take them, move them from room to room. You don't hear them uh, being, uh, you know, they're not going to boss you back if they're comatose essentially right or was it just to see or was it truly testing or was it just let's keep them quiet yeah i really do wonder a little bit of both probably well in this part i've read i i read in quite a few 
articles, which is the comment of they were more likely to die at the hospital than to be discharged. Um, In 1929, there were 55 discharges from Crownsville and 92 92 deaths. deaths. I bet the largest uh, time of uh, discharge was, again, when they closed down the farm. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Hayes Williams knows all too well about the hospital's death rate. After making coffins for their dead, patients carted them to the nearby cemetery. Most of the gravestones are marked only with numbers, and the ledger that would have linked those numbers to names have been destroyed. For eight years, Hayes Williams has been combing through death certificates to find those lost names. No one is sure how many people are buried on the hill, but Hayes Williams says she and her volunteers have found 1,700 people whose death certificates say they were buried at Crownsville State Hospital. Among the dead are stillborn babies conceived by women while they were at the hospital. One was a white woman who committed suicide by jumping in front of a train. Uh-huh. One was a man who drowned while there another fell by a skull fracture. And you, you do wonder, the stillborn babies, were mm-hmm. they really stillborn? Or right. is that just what's on the yes. documentation? And, I mean, yeah, especially because, I mean, I'm sure women getting pregnant while in there is... Yeah. Yeah. Orderlies. Lots of other questions. Uh Yeah. Like, how did they get pregnant? And Hmm. who got them pregnant? And yeah. All really good questions. And there are also countless people who had no known relatives to claim their bodies in the deaths. Um, The stated causes of death on the certificates are often so broad that Hayes Williams wonders if they are intended to disguise the real causes. Back to what I just said about the stillborn. Mm -hmm. You're like, yeah, more than likely. Many were listed as removed, which could mean they were released to relatives. Um, But in 1939, when the Maryland Autopsy Board was created, the death certificates show that significantly fewer bodies were buried at the cemetery and many more were taken to the University of Maryland Medical School. And you do have to wonder if there aren't some that were buried and were never documented. I'm sure there were. Yeah. Wow. Um, Members of the autopsy board confirmed that cadavers were sent to the school for practice and later unceremoniously incinerated. In the 1940s, conditions at the hospital deteriorated deteriorate why can't yeah, i say that word deteriorated today? i don't Thank know you. well there's lots of hard words we have that <laughs> one that i'm like i actually said it i will not try to say it again <laughs> um but anyhow the conditions got worse the patient uh census showed that the population went from a manageable 521 in 1920 to 2719 in 1955 yeah and there were what 1800 when was that yeah it's just the, the the numbers are all over the place yeah it yeah yeah 1949 there was 1800 so yeah, yeah. it really did go up a lot Patients were crowded into windowless dorms and given a little to eat. They wandered aimlessly or were shackled to chairs and walls because they posed a risk to themselves and others. Many photos restricted by the Maryland State Archives for privacy reasons reveal the terrible conditions. 
As early as the 40s, the Washington Post and other newspapers were reporting on the awful conditions, but things went unchanged until the late 60s. Paul Lertz, an employee of Crownsville from 1964 until it closed, said patients were more likely to leave Crownsville through death than discharge. It's a common theme that we just keep hearing and seeing. Um, Many of the hospital's dead were used either for medical research or buried in numbered graves. Yep, those numbered graves, and now we don't know what those numbers are. And so I actually read some of the newspaper articles, and the Evening Sun, June 5th, 1952, states that Dr. Earl K. Holt Jr. is being hired at $12,000, which is about $130,000 today, to assist the Commissioner of Mental Hygiene. Based on the next article, this was not money well spent. Whoops. The Evening Sun, again, uh, January 31st, 1955. So two and a half years later. Mm-hmm, states that Crownsville Mental Hospital crowded 30% over capacity. 591 persons or 30% over uh, the capacity. Official capacity is 1,100 patients. Laundry facilities are not able to keep up with the demand, and some patients are nude. In 1954, during an inspection, this was addressed and laundry facilities were added. Nude. Yeah. That's just... Yes. Um, And then some patients were not allowed outdoors on mild, sunny winter days because there were not enough staff to supervise patients. On average, only 49 patients are given psychotherapy per day. Out of... 11 no 16 1700 people yeah that's Um, not a very good um percentage one building in its annex packed 836 patients 50 of whom did not have beds 80 women in one disturbed ward share seven toilets one shower that is turned off to prevent scalding and other injury and two tubs so i did some calculations if each woman woman received a 15 minute shower that's 20 hours of continuous shower use using the shower and two tubs allowing each woman 15 minutes that's still almost seven hours i'm guessing these women were not bathed daily i doubt i don't even know if they would have been bathed weekly no. at this point yeah. i mean well and it gets worse <laughs> yes so in another building which is referred to as the real hospital 124 patients live in an atmosphere of recovery how lovely where they are attended by 54 staff members this sounds like a good ratio of mm. staff to patient yeah and most of these One patients have private rooms Hmm. I'm kind of guessing money is somehow involved. So if you have some money, you get those. If you don't, you're 80 to 7 toilets. Yeah. The Hugh Young building, built for 300 people, houses 500 women. This building and its annex B house a total of 836 people. For these people, there were 74 toilets, 24 showers, and 15 tubs. The state was working on expanding to 109 toilets, 61 showers, and 20 tubs. So numbers again. Only using the 24 showers, it would take about 9 hours for each person to receive a 
15 minute shower. Including the 20 tubs, it would take at least five and a half hours for each patient to receive a 15 minute shower or bath. That's not accounting for the time to fill or empty the tubs. Or clean them in between. Mm-hmm. And according to Google, that takes about 20 minutes total. Again, I'm not, I'm guessing these patients yeah. were not big. I think daily. only the ones that had the better ratio because you remember of the 836 80 of them were in that one ward with seven toilets and one shower right so their distribution was a little less Mm -hmm. in the other space but that's just it's just it's mind-boggling bad to really yeah yeah it's like i know that they're it they're throwaway people Mm -hmm. that's essentially what we're we're telling you is the the facility basically did not live up to its intended purpose or maybe it did mm. Who, whose intention are we talking about two wards have no night supervision these wards are filled with senile women women too old to hurt themselves i'm sorry <laughs> yeah uh, yes so not enough beds in one Hugh Young ward. 80 women have to contend for 50 beds. The beds are jammed together into the rooms. In some cases, the beds are pushed together with no room between. Some women sleep two to three to a bed. Others sleep on straw ticks, which is a coarse cotton mattress filled with straw on the floor. Another ward has 95 patients, but only 57 beds. Crownsville Mm. authorities stated for the article, if you figure on the basis of how much it costs per day to keep a person in a tax-supported mental hospital, then a building would probably have one of the cheapest rates in the country. Then they further added, if anyone ever figures out how much it costs per day to get a person out of a tax-supported mental hospital, then a building would probably have one of the most expensive rates in the country. So what's he trying to say? That you, we're, we're keeping your tax rates down. Something like You're that. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, defective <sighs> children. Oof. Uh, re- relatively few of its inmates ever leave it. The Winter Code building houses most of the facilities defective children these defective children yes i'm sorry i'm just gonna sit I, I here on this saying it this I phrase saying it that way because that's how it was phrased in the article <laughs> i mean yeah uh-huh these inmates range from less than four weeks old to women and men in their 40s in one of the day rooms when an attendant is cleaning the children are penned into half of the room once clean the children are penned on the other half of the room until the cleaning is completed i've seen this with like farming Mm -hmm. you pen them off and then you pen them off the other side oh wow okay on January 7th, only five attendants look after the needs of almost 300 children. The mm. explanation was that one person called out sick and 11 were taking training course to make them more proficient. At what? Good question. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 53 children receive a preschool and kindergarten education only. Five years before, in 1950, no education was provided. Well, Great. Again, they're throwaway children. They're defective. 
yeah. throw them away. Great care is taken to see that nine of the facility's buildings are not overcrowded. Here Rich we go. Rich people. People who have money to spend. Yep. Inmates in Building C are classified as criminally insane. These quarters are kept much neater. These patients are under the protection of the courts. The new unit also is not overpopulated as it houses inmates with serious physical ailments. On January 7th, one attendant was assigned to 37 patients in the chronic infirmary, and another attendant was assigned to 94 patients of the semi-disturbed wings, which there are two. Um, this goes back to that whole, that's not enough people. Mm -mm. Not uh, at all. Attendant to patient ratio is abysmally bad. The pride and joy is the Adolf Meyer building. The patients here get really curative, curative treatment. Only 124 patients maximum are allowed in this building, which is also used as an administration building. Even its disturbed ward rarely contains more than 20 patients. Built along the lines of a modern motel, the Meyer building provides ample recreation, sleeping, and treatment areas. The building is designed so that one out of four patients can have a small private room. When these patients are transitioned out of the Crownsville Mental Hospital, they go next door to the Crownsville's new convalescent cottages. These cottages are designed to hold 52 patients each. Five of the cottages house pa patients that do groundwork, farm work, and other productive work. The other cottage is used to house actual convalescent patients. Not sure what they mean by actual, actual but, <laughs> you know, as in rich? I don't know. It is not crowded. Less than 50 of the 250. 2,500. Thank you. Patients have received enough treatment to go home. So I would call these convalescent cottages almost like halfway houses? Kind of. I mean, it's kind of... insane? It seems like it's... Okay, they've that's completed the work labor. their... Yeah, they've completed their treatment. They are able to live without supervision. So... But they stay on to do work because there's nowhere else for them to go? Mm-hmm. I'm guessing? Yeah. Pretty much. Wow. So, October 22nd, 1969, again in the evening sun, Dr. George Phillips tries to turn things around. He stated that for years the common thing has been... A negative approach to mo mental illness. Yes. But that attitude has not done the job. So let's change it. Good idea. We shouldn't think of mental patients as people who have to be locked up. A patient is more likely to benefit if we focused on his potential instead of his il illness. Mm, still need to pay attention to the illness. Yeah. Goals oh, listed to improve the hospital's image and morale, to improve the hospital relations with the community, and to plan and implement programs to meet the mental health needs of the community. Okay. I, I would kind of <laughs> maybe try and put like actual treatment of mental patients first, but yeah. I don't know. Let's look at um, maybe patient to attendant ratio, doctor slash yeah. nurse skin care. I don't know. Yeah. I think I would use those kinds There's of goals. There's a few things, yeah. In 1969, the Winter Cove building is now the Winter Cold School 
providing education for grades 1 through 12. They keep the classes to about 10 students to provide more individualized attention. Good. The school was integrated in 1963, and classes are both black and white students. Honors were received for Winter Code for being the most innovative program for dealing with emotionally disturbed youngsters in a mental facility by the American Psychiatric Association. Pretty sure the bar was pretty low. Yeah, definitely. And I do know that some patients were actually working. They had, I guess, gotten better and they were um, working as teachers. Teachers. Mm -hmm. Mm. So in the Baltimore Sun on March 4th, 1976, a grand jury was called because several doctors had been found to be cheating on their timesheets, showing them working more than they actually did. This is my shocked face. <laughs> I think y'all can guess by Missy's uh, <laughs> laughing how shocked my face looks. Yes. Mm. Um, you know, and this is this is after them trying to make the place better, you know, so that, you know, that was in 1969. This is 1976. And so in 1980, um, the Evening Sun reported that this article states that Crownsville flunked current standards of decency. It also has too many antiquated, unsafe buildings, inadequate staffing, and little privacy. Shocker. So it continues. Um, Baltimore Sun, April 30th, 1994. Do you want to start with this one? Sure. Yeah. Actually, I did a lot of extra. We dove a little deep on Mr. Well, Dr. Hmm. Mr. Haroon Ansari. He applied to and received a $62,000 a year job as the head of Crownsville Mental Hospital. He falsified his resume and no one bothered to do a background check. Part of the job is overseeing a $24 million budget. What do you think he did with that? (laughs) He ran the hospital for six months before people became suspicious. He was removed from the position and entered a plea of plea deal with Anne Arundel County Circuit Court, where he received five years probation and a $3,000 fee. That didn't even cover the salary he had swindled. Uh, Yeah, not to mention what he got out of that $24 million budget. Yeah. A condition of his parole was that he had to be completely truthful on any future job applications. <laughs> and somebody said he was a likable man who won the respect of some of his colleagues before he was exposed. Uh, a week after entering his plea deal in Maryland, he again falsified his resume in Michigan, gaining a position at Blue Cross Blue Shield as associate director of their Blue Care Network. After he was found out, he did it yet again, applying for a job using a fake name. The latest resume, this time screened by the company, listed employment at various government and private health care organizations that didn't exist or had never heard of him. Ansari was fired and charged with violating his probation by failing to remain truthful on job applications. Anne Arundel Cir- County Circuit uh, Judge Clayton Green reinstated his criminal conviction and sent him to jail. He only went to jail for like a week. Yeah. A week. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it gets better. Yes. Or worse. Or, And I just think this, this really just highlights how corrupt. Yes. 
the the location was that this guy got to do so much and it kind of is a a, i don't know what's the word i'm looking for here Uh, a cautionary tale and maybe some other people need to look a little bit further into these swindlers yes so he disappeared for a few years and then i found an article in 2020 entitled harun ansari naz committing decades-long healthcare fraud across state lines a real PhD in Indiana, J.T. Lancaster, wrote an op-ed. I am writing to share a story on fraud in Elkhart, Indiana, that has not yet been covered in local or statewide news. Perhaps it may already be familiar to you, but just in case, please allow me to share some context with you. My partner and I just finished watching the Kickstarter-funded documentary by film by R. Todd Stevens entitled crownsville hospital from lunacy to legacy 2018 on amazon prime about the horrific dehumanizing racist conditions at the crownsville hospital center formerly known as the crownsville state hospital and originally until until 1912 the hospital for the negro insane of maryland i am writing this because the documentary has not seemed to gain the attention it deserves so this person's like please watch and Mm. we're like yes please do after the film's producers failed attempts to reach Ansari, who has since changed his last name to Ansari Nas, his lawyer called back on Ansari's behalf, sending a cease and desist letter. While watching, I was curious about Ansari's whereabouts, so I googled him and simultaneously learned from the documentari- documentary that Ansari is executive director at Riverpoint Surgery Center, an ambulatory surgical center in Elkhart, Indiana, since he established it on January 1st, 1997. Um, 23 years previous Wow. to this 2020 article. Less than half a year after violating his five-year Maryland probation for the position <laughs> in Michigan. It forces one to question whether Riverpoint is really accredited in the state of Indiana for ambulatory health care. How far is Ansari Nas willing to go for capitalist greed? Ansari still claims to have a PhD, which was not only a violation of his Maryland probation back in 1997, but is also not a violation of Indi- isn't isn't it also a violation of Indiana state law? It should be. I think so. I don't I, know. I mean, you hope. <laughs> He also established a number of limited liability corporations in Indiana since moving to the area, including Pinnacle Hospital, Medland, LaGrange Surgery Surgery Center, Ambulatory Surgery Center, to name a few. They may or may not be registered with the state any longer. (laughs) It's frightening and feels uneasy to know that someone running a private surgery center has a record of fraud and falsifying credentials. Is there a way to investigate this further? There has been no press about him since his 1996 violation. It feels like it's even more difficult to trust privatized healthcare corporations when people like Ansari Nas are getting away with falsifying documents. I looked up and found documentation of Riverpoint's state certification and licensure. But if Ansari is falsifying his credentials, what else might he and his colleagues or investors be falsifying? when he already has a pattern of breaking the law. Hmm. 
He has been getting away with this continuous fraud for over 23 years. He is not a doctor of any kind. As a physician who received her PhD and MD the legit way, it's beyond disturbing and insulting to know that Ansari Nas and countless others could still be getting away with this injustice. Ansari Nas has been unchecked since 1997, moving across state lines when he established the River Point Surgery Center, while still in the midst of his five-year probationary period. Something just doesn't add up. I have shared this story with a number of journalists, news stations, and media within and across the state of Indiana, hoping it finally gets the attention I believe it deserves. I haven't seen anything. Lovely guy. Lovely. I'm I'm glad I ran across this because there's like yeah. I think I've heard of this and then yeah. you're like oh my gosh. <laughs> so let's talk a little murder. Um, in 1963, Carlos R. Grosso murdered his aunt and uncle, and in 1974 he escaped the facility, being Crownsville Mental Hospital, but eventually turned himself in because he got too hungry. Well, you know. I, I, One must eat. Yes. In 1980, George M. Brooks murdered a 92-year-old Maud Ed- Scott Edgel. One arm had been severed from her body, and he had been in and out of Crownsville for many years, more than 23 times. 23. Yes. That's a lot. In 1982, Henry Howard killed his mother, aunt, uncle and grandmother while he did not stay at crownsville apparently other family members had his grandmother had been the only family member not to have spent time in crownsville his mental illness was fed from radio messages fed by satan okay lovely well a dog talks to you satan talks to you In 1987, William Day, who was security chief, and Linda Denise Johnson were found in a murder-suicide in one of the Crownsville State Mental Hospital's cottages. It appears she shot him and then turned the gun on herself for unknown reasons. Awesome. In 1990, Stephen Gregory Anderson was remanded to Crownsville for the strangulation, rape, and murder of Gwen Dixon Criswell, 42, who had been reported missing after she did not return from a shopping trip. Hmm. Criswell. So, wonder if she was related to the automobile. Maybe. Yeah. They, they own a number of automotive... Hmm. Uh, I can do this. Places that sell cars. Who knows okay. words? So, in 2004, Crownsville Mental Hospital was closed down and has remained empty aside from being used as a filming location for the 2006 B-rated horror film Crazy Eights, which I have seen, by the way. (laughs) A group of former employees afraid the hospital's potential demolition would serve as an erasure of its sordid history keep an eye out for any future plans many of the walls and windows panes in the buildings contain murals painted by the patients during art therapy in the hospital's later more humane years 67 buildings existed at the closing of the hospital buildings were constructed from 1913 through 1970 16 of the buildings are on the Maryland Register of Historic Properties. On August 2, 2013, the American Civil Liberties Union of Maryland, the Caucus of African American Leaders, the Maryland State Conference of NAACP Branches, the American 
the Anne Arundel County NAACP and the Maryland Disability Law Center sent a letter to Governor Martin O'Malley asking for a concerted effort by the state to pull together the pieces of the tragic Crownsville story that had been told over the years and to create a fitting memorial for the more than 1,800 patients who re- whose remains are buried there so as to ensure that their lives are never forget- forgotten. The group was also asked to the state to identify individuals buried in unmarked graves as well as those um, patients remaining remains that were sent to the University of Maryland Medical Schools. A public hearing organized by the Legislative Black Caucus of Maryland on the mistreatment and the abuse at the former Crownsville State Hospital was held on September 18, 2013 in Annapolis. On February 11, 2014, the governor notified the coalition that he would be appointing an independent expert to chair a work group to review the issues raised in the coalition's letter and testimony at the Legislative Black Caucus hearing. Workgroup membership will include representatives of the coalition organizations and relevant state agencies, including the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and Maryland State Archives. The ACLU of Maryland believes that the patients who died at Crownsville and those who contributed to the mental to the medical research should be properly acknowledged and never forgotten. We are hopeful that the outcome of the work group will honor the patients who suffered at Crownsville by fully telling their story and helping to to support a current advocacy on equal <laughs> equity <laughs> in mental health services in Maryland. That was a mouthful. It was. So um, in October of 2021, the Crownsville State Hospital, an institution with a grisly past, as we've said, has been closed since 2004, but it's crumbling buildings barely a mile from the Anne Arundel County Fairgrounds and near the site of the annual Renaissance Festival are an eyesore that the county executive Stuart Pittman says he wants to turn into a garden spot. He may get that chance. The state health department's recently released 20-year master plan calls for divesting three uh, closed mental health facilities, including Crownsville. The site where uh, several agencies, including the Anne Arundel County Police, uh, County Food Bank, and two state agencies and two residential drug treatment centers operate, and the usable buildings on campus will first have to go through the state's lengthy property disposal process. Um, they're currently building. I, I, if you go down that road, if you don't go down Crownsville Road, they're building next to Chrysalis House. So, hmm. Even so, Pittman says it's an ex- exciting opportunity to turn the 544-acre parcel into a real jewel in the center of Anne Arundel County. I want to see that place as a center for healing, a place where mental health and really all health is promoted and encouraged, he told WYPR. Also a place where the community can go, a regional park. totally curious what they want to do with this yeah (laughs) it would it would be done in a way that is fiscally responsible and tears down the buildings that should come down and that preserves some of the beautiful architecture that's there some of the historic buildings and i i i do love the idea you know as we said earlier these buildings are not far from where tara lived And and you lived yeah and um you know it really is a beautiful the architecture is neat. There's yeah. some beautiful plantings, like those gorgeous uh, weeping cherry trees. Yeah. Um, it 
and this, like they've said before, the space isn't completely vacant. There's um, some uh, training facilities for the Anne Arundel County uh, cops, the Chrysalis mm-hmm. House, and some other, the food bank. Um, I don't understand how they would divest them when they're currently building over there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. Now I'm, I'm going to look closer the next time I drive past to see what it is they're building. But it's it's just right behind. I don't know if you how often you drive down Crownsville Road. Uh, but. Actually, I was there, I drove down it not that long ago because yeah, um, I was going down way, to the guild. I went on my way to a tattoo appointment. So right, because yeah. going down that's a it's a good back road for, road it, for that. It is, and it's pretty drive. So, it is pretty. It's, I mean. That's one of the reasons I liked Crownsville is just very, um, there's, it's, you can feel like you're out in the country when you're in the middle of a metropolitan area. But yeah, it'd be interesting. They're, they're building, there are other, but there's a lot of buildings that, there's the one that's closest to Lures. It looks like a, oh yeah, looks like a school for all I know, but that one's falling down. That one probably has a bunch of asbestos in it. All of them probably have a bunch of asbestos in them. And I mean... You know, I mean, some of the, some of the buildings are kind of cool looking. I love that archway. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just that's kind of cool. Um, the main big pretty building is yeah. quite pretty, but you, I can imagine the, the barns insides and other things. Yeah, probably horrible on those buildings too, though. Lead I mean, paint, it's, asbestos. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'll keep an eye out, an ear out, and I'm curious um, to see if we can find any follow up uh, articles from that group that's been watching and and wants mm-hmm. people to not forget yeah the history of and it's weird because trying to get at some of the how bad they were to the not actually insane but deemed mentally insane um african americans there's just yeah it doesn't exist that well there very little actually exists in records yeah and that's why that one group is working so hard to try to the nwacp everybody's like it was known that it was a terrible place, but mm-hmm. it's different to go from it's known that it was bad to actually getting more than just we have a handful of records that state, okay, it's definitely over capacity. Mm-hmm. But what else? And some of the horrible things that they did, ugh, I, lobotomies and everything yeah. like that just weird me out. Yes, it's, yeah, it's an interesting, it would be interesting to see more of the history of it. Like you said, what, what actually did happen? You know, I mean, that guy found jars of, of body parts and, and things. And I mean, you know, I mean, and it was common. I think, wasn't it Martin Luther King's Jr.'s mom was sent to a mental hospital once just because she was being too, I can't remember if it was her or another one of the, um, you know, just if you were too out and about and uppity, if you will, especially as a woman, they would mm. send you to a mental institution. Hmm. Yeah. Glad uh, we're not living in those times. Although these well, times I don't are know. These times of... are getting interesting <laughs> yeah. uh, for people who have uteruses or mm. were born with them. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go into politics, politics but <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, definitely a lot of interesting things going on today as well. But, you know, I, I can imagine living as a woman back then was much, much worse. Yes, so. I'm sure it was. But um, that is that is our episode. So, <laughs> on that lovely note, yeah, <laughs> let's uh, we'll all dream of lobotomies and uh, you know, 
raping the the uh, women who are in the institution <laughs> because it's just awesome. Yeah. So, well, um, we hope you enjoyed this episode. <laughs> we <laughs> might be a little that. downer. <laughs> but uh, thank you for listening to Nothing Happens in a Small Town, where things do happen, and small towns are not the quiet, quaint places you think they are. And you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash nothing happens in a small town. Our, user, our Instagram, Instagram username is nothing happens in a small town twitter username is nothing happens in a small town at n-h-i-a-s-t and our facebook is nothing happens in a small town at n-h-i-a-s-t 2021 and gmail and again we do we do take listeners uh, suggestions definitely so, nothing happens in a small town at gmail.com Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.